This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. From Hospice Chaplains and Audio Hive Podcasting Studios in Joliet, Illinois, this is the Hospice Chaplains Show, and I'm your host, Saul Ebema. My co-host Joe is out of town today, but I have a special co-host joining me today. Could you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Good morning. I'm Marie Conlon, and I'm grateful to be here today. Our guest today is Judy Cornish. She's the author of Dementia Handbook, How to Provide Dementia Care at Home. You can find our book on Amazon. Judy, welcome to the show. Could you give us a little background of where you grew up? Well, I'm actually Canadian by birth. I I grew up in Calgary and Alberta and Victoria on Vancouver Island. I also lived in Vancouver, British Columbia, um, before moving, marrying and moving to Los Angeles. And that was a tremendous cultural uh, change. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. So what was different? You know, I think the first thing I noticed, and I was only 19 when when I emigrated to the United States. So, um, and I know Americans think that Canadians are just Americans on the wrong side of the border. (laughs) But, um, you know, I really noticed this focus on independence. I I think in the United States, we have um, a culture of the individual. And we really prize that. Mm -hmm. And coming from Canada, even which is so close um, culturally and geographically, but still in Canada, you have more of a sense of family, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think many cultures um, are more strongly balanced family and duty to family than, Mm -hmm. than we do in the United States. And and there's a number of reasons for that, of course. Um, Primarily, I think social security, and having social security begin in, in the early 1960s. And so in, in the United States, our elders could afford to live separately from their families. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's wonderful things. I mean, it's, it's truly incredibly um, en- enabling to have uh, such a sizable amount of money and support go to our elders. I, I really applaud that. But on the other hand, because people don't want to be a burden to their children, uh, we enabled them to not live closely as multi-generational families. Hmm. And, and when that happens, I think a society loses their, their I guess the, you lose the experience, but you also lose understanding of what it means to age and to be an elder and to, uh, to die. We lose that. Hmm. Um, That's powerful. Yeah, you know, everything has its its uh, for every good effect you you create. There's always some negative attached to it. So you leave Canada and then you come into the United States and you have this culture shock. Did you have family here, or how did you adjust and cope? 
No, I actually married into a family, an American family, but uh, it was very difficult for me. And uh, ultimately, I wasn't able to go to college until after I'd ended that marriage. Hmm. And my children were young, uh, in their teens. And, um, and so I went to college in my mid-30s and uh, wasn't exactly your average American college student. Yeah. Yeah, being a, being a young mother, so... And at that point, you decided to stay in the U.S. You know, actually, I didn't um, truly be decide whether or not I would stay until, um, well, so I did my undergraduate degree. I, I had uh, public benefits, that like uh, food stamps and Section 8 housing. And I worked really hard because I believed that if tax dollars were, were coming to me, as, a, as an immigrant, that I should be working very hard to end up um, able to pay taxes. Mm. And I know that sounds odd, but it was, mm. it was a, I, I think I went for three or four years thinking if I could just graduate, if I could just get a degree, I would be able to pay taxes. And um, so I, I earned several scholarships. Um, and the Ford Family Foundation scholarship was the primary one that I accepted. And um, that one enabled me to go to graduate school and um, supported the cost of, of living for my son and myself and, um, and all of the educational costs. But, um, well, long story short, as it turned out, I couldn't go into the, the graduate program I wished, which would have been teaching language um, and earning an MA TESOL. And so I was forced to accept what would accept me. And that's how I ended up in law school. It was my study of the law and my uh, undergraduate studies in language that caused me to see that pattern of skills kept and skills lost when we begin to experience dementia. Hmm. Um, in language acquisition, the basic premise or one of the, the most basic rules is that whatever our primary language was, that shapes the, the errors we make when learning our second. Mm. And that's totally logical. Um, but the brain is becomes wired by the first language, and that determines the errors that we encounter and, and the errors that our brains make when we're um, adopting a second language. And what that did for me when I, when I walked away from the law and um, became fascinated with, with dementia and, you know, my neighbors there in Moscow, Idaho. And I started to try to think, you know, I, I could see these, everybody told me dementia makes you crazy. But mm. I was just spending time with probably half a dozen of my elders who all had been diagnosed as having dementia. And I did not see anything crazy about their behaviors or their reactions at all. Mm -hmm. They were making, I, I couldn't see the pattern at first, but I could see that with, you know, I, I knew that the brain only makes errors that are logical. Mm -hmm. And so to me, coming from a legal or, and, and a language background, I saw the, the inexplicable behaviors as logical expressions of what was happening for them in their experience. 
And then secondly, going <laughs> myself. Interesting. So that that that's where it began. Uh, there is no way anybody's becoming crazy. This is logic. And mm. if I can't see the pattern, it's because I'm not looking carefully enough. Or what I learned from the law is that when when you're you know a client comes into the office and they start telling you this you know this is my problem, and you start asking questions and and uh, they'll tell you all these different facts. And at first, it doesn't make any sense. You know, it's inexplicable. But what you do is you just keep backing up and getting a bigger picture. And when you when you back up and you're, you're looking broadly enough, the facts fall into place and start making sense. And and so that to me, you know, I I, I hear that dementia is going to make us crazy and nobody can help the person and they gradually become more and more isolated and pretty soon they're lost. And the family says, oh, I lost my mother. She's she's experiencing Alzheimer's. But they'll say she has Alzheimer's. She has dementia. And she doesn't talk to me anymore. I've lost her. Mm. But that's because we're looking at dementia from a medical perspective. And we're saying we have a healthy person. They begin to experience a disease. We call it dementia. And then there's going to be there's going to be symptoms because it's a disease. Mm. But the only symptoms we see are behavioral. Mm. And so if you've got behavioral symptoms, then then in, in this model, disease, symptom, treatment, cure, then you have to change a person's behaviors. And in, in a medical model, you ignore the person. You ignore their emotional needs. And then you're you're saying, well, how do we change behaviors? Well, we lock them up. We put them behind a locked door so they can't wander off. Or um, if they are, are reacting, you know, combatively, well, we'll just give them a psychotropic drug and that will slow down and um, lessen their ability to express themselves mm. in behaviors. But that's not treatment. And that's completely missing the point. And so in, the other thing that happened that I, that I gained from my um, – my experience of going to law school quite unexpectedly, because to tell you the truth, it happened with about 10 days notice. Um, but uh, I had spent my entire life studying language, studying art, uh, reading literature, writing, uh, you know, uh, reading everything I could find on a topic, and then writing what I thought about that topic. And then when I arrived in law school, none of that counted. With the law, identify the facts, identify the applicable law, apply the law to the facts. Nobody cares what your opinion is. It's just law plus fact equals result. Mm. So to me, that was so limiting and I was very uncomfortable. And so I didn't love law school at all, even though I ended up um, with, with uh, going from law school to clerking in the Oregon courts. But um that that discomfort, the distress I felt when when I went to law school and suddenly discovered that none of the tools that I had been using to that point succeeded or worked. And then, you know, 10 years later, I'm, I start spending time with my elders, my neighbors who are experiencing dementia. And I could see the same distress, the same uh, discomfort. And it probably took me about six months <laughs> before the penny dropped. And it was like, ah, oh, wait a minute, I get it. 
When I went to law school, I couldn't use intuitive thinking skills anymore. I was uncomfortable because I was so comfortable using those. And I had to begin using rational thinking skills, Mm. which I wasn't very good at. And here are all my elders who are suddenly required to use intuitive thinking skills. And they've lived their lives using both rational thinking and intuitive thinking. And all of a sudden, they don't have rational thinking skills anymore. Those are melting away. And so that's what shaped my work. And this is why I never did go back to the law, was because I could see a truth. (laughs) And, And so many people are suffering. And if, if we as families, as the companions of people who are experiencing dementia, if we simply understood that this is just changing skills, it's not disease. If, if I was a researcher, if I was a medical expert, I'd be in, in a laboratory somewhere researching disease. But I'm just a person. And most of us are just people who love someone who's experiencing dementia. How did you arrive to that knowledge? Did you have a relative suffering from dementia and you were able to observe? Um, I'm just curious to how you arrived to that really powerful knowledge. You know, I don't have anybody in my family and, and that has or was experiencing dementia. Apparently now I do, but um, I didn't come from a close family at all. But what happened was I, I just moved to Moscow, Idaho, and left my practice in Portland, Oregon. And, and it had taken me until 2008 to really decide that I would remain in the U.S. and not emigrate back to Canada and not join my youngest son in Europe. And, and so there I was in Moscow. And one evening, the, I'd been getting to know one of the neighbors. And she was, you know, in her mid-60s and a little forgetful, but really enjoying life. And her daughter came over and said, well, guess what? Mom keeps losing the car. So we're going to move her into the care facility and sell the house. And that was her home of 56 years. And so um, I said, goodness, you know, I'm not working. Um, I'll take, you know, I'll drop in on her. She needs to get groceries. I can go with her. If she wants to go swimming, I can go. I'll take her swimming. And then within about two weeks, I think I had half a dozen. You know, it's a small town. Mm. So the kids would call and say, um, hello, Judy, Judy Cornish. We hear you're looking after so-and-so's mom. Well, my dad is living alone in Moscow, and we think he's beginning to be a little forgetful. And, mm. and so within two months, I realized I'd started something called dementia care. Mm. And, but by then, I was hooked. I was determined to figure out what it was that was really happening. And... Uh, you know, from there, five years later, I began writing and teaching. That uh, you know, it takes some time. I mean, you've got to play around. You've got to spend time with many different people, many people experiencing various types of dementia, and you need to see people living at home in their own homes before they're moved, before they're thrown into group living, and mm-hmm. then you can see what's true in a pattern. So. So what is the difference you see from somebody living in their own home, even though they're slowly changing, then to be thrown into a group home? What what happens to them inside their brain? You know, actually, so if if I'm beginning to experience dementia, we all be, we all start out independent adults, and and then we're elders, mm-hmm. and um, 
we begin with independence. And gradually, um, some people, like, and erratically, there's no, um, you can't pinpoint a trajectory for any specific person, but specific rational thinking skills will suddenly disappear overnight. One here, one there. Maybe the ability to follow a sequence. Maybe the ability to see cause and effect. The ability to prioritize an idea or an action. Um, we we will people gradually lose these, and so they're in their own home in a familiar place. And at the same time, so so the pattern is losing rational thinking skills, not intuitive thinking skills. Losing memory skills, which takes away your ability to, to exist in the past, your remembering self, but you keep your experiential self. You, you fully exist in the present. But we also lose attention skills. And when you lose attention skills, you lose the ability to mindfully choose where to put your attention. But you don't lose the mindlessness skills, which are automatic thinking scripts and muscle memory. So you take, you take, let's say, I am beginning to gradually lose rational thinking skills, memory skills, and attention skills. But I'm living in the same home I've lived in for 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. I have numerous automatic thinking scripts. That's how I load the dishwasher. That's how I unload the dishwasher. I have muscle memory. That's how I, when I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm not fully awake. That's how I make it to the bathroom and back into bed again. Mm. And so this individual is, is losing cognitive skills, at, but they're in the same uh, stable environment. They're gradually beginning to fail at more and more tasks. And they're gradually becoming less and less sure of themselves. They're losing confidence in themselves and their own, their own ability to stay safe. But if I take that individual, then so the, the kids drop by, they find they see me being quite quite forgetful and erratic, and they say, "Judy, Mom, you just have to go to a care facility where you will be safe." What happens? I suddenly find myself not living alone, mm. as I have done for many years, and all of a sudden I'm in a group, mm. or maybe I'm in a little apartment alone in a building, but I eat my meals in a group. And all the activities are group activities. And there are there's another group, which is those who are in charge. And so I suddenly find myself in a brand new set of rooms with no rational thinking skills and no memory skills. And what that means is I am entirely unable to learn new things, mm. except using my intuitive thinking skills which is learning through experience. Now, I can, I can learn through experience, but I don't have rational thinking skills, so I can't initiate activities. I can't choose, I'm going to go to lunch. And if I'm losing memory skills, I might not remember that that feeling, you know, that, that feeling in your stomach that tells you you are hungry and you should eat food, you might not associate that. You've lost the memory that that means you are hungry and you need to eat. And so what, what I'll find is I have, I have a client who's doing very well with gradually increased care in the home she's lived in for 10, 20 years. Family gets nervous, throw her into assisted living, 
where there's staff 24-7 and she'll be safer. And then one, one, one woman in particular, when we finally, they, the family swooped in, grabbed mom, put her into an assisted living apartment, moved all her stuff in. And a week later, we were allowed to go back in and resume daytime visits. And we found a woman who's sitting fully clothed on her own living room couch in a brand new apartment. And, and when my caregiver opened the door, she looked up and it took some time. The caregiver had to come sit down beside her. And that's when the caregiver figured out she was, she was, she was wet and the couch was wet. And she looked at the caregiver and when she finally recognized this is a person I know, the first thing she said was, how did you find me? And the second thing she said was, how did you get in here? Because she had no ability to learn which door went down the hall to the dining room. She'd become out of her, her terror and her fear. She became incontinent overnight. And she developed all kinds of really negative self, um, not, not self-harm behaviors, but behaviors that harmed her because she couldn't initiate actions and she couldn't learn new things. And she couldn't see, she couldn't remember that if one time she went down that hall, she'd find the nurse's station or the dining room. And she couldn't see that if she did this, that would occur. She had no cause and effect. So what, what we do when we um, remove somebody, so I'm sorry, this is a long answer, but um, we take somebody at the very most vulnerable period of their lives when they've lost the ability to quickly react, initiate, and learn new things. And we throw them into a new, brand new situation. And we say they're going to be safer. Our guest is Judy Cornish. She's wrote two books. The first is Dementia with Dignity. And the second is the Dementia Handbook. We'll be right back. We've been waiting waiting for COVID-19 vaccines to be developed. Now, waiting for them to get to us. But you can do more than wait. You have powerful ways to help slow the spread right now and protect your family and loved ones too. Here's how. Watch your distance. Stay at least six feet away from folks you don't live with. It's risky to be indoors with them too. And of course, avoid crowds. Also, wear a mask. CDC reports masks protect the people who wear them and folks around them. And wash your hands using soap and water for 20 seconds and do it frequently. Vaccines won't make COVID go away overnight, but they give us a real chance to finally overcome it. As long as we keep watching our distance, wearing our masks and washing our hands. Learn more about vaccines at cdc.gov coronavirus. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Sole Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We are continuing our conversation with Judy Cornish. Could you tell us what was the motivation for the writing of your first book, The Dementia Handbook? The Dementia Handbook, um, my purpose with it was to um, share with everyone, just the general public, people, families, caregivers at home in the community, what they can expect from dementia. And I wanted to communicate as briefly and succinctly as I could the pattern that is that lies behind everyone's experience of dementia, regardless of type. 
And so that book, um, I sat down and I wrote it as if I was writing a memoranda to one of the justices. <laughs> and, and actually, it's a lot briefer than many of the memoranda I wrote mm. <laughs> at the courts. But um, 100 pages. And I thought, if I can just say this, just purely, this is these are the skills lost. These are the skills kept. And these are the emotional needs that are created by the specific skills locked and kept. That somebody could tuck it into a briefcase, read it on the train on the way to work, um, easily hide it under a pillow um, if you're living at home with somebody who is experiencing dementia but maybe not able to be aware of it. And, um, and that if I just explained that pattern, people would be able to respond through knowledge and provide kinder dementia care. That was the purpose of that first little book. <laughs> it's a good book. And um, is this where you introduced the Dawn method? I, you know, I was teaching um, before I wrote the books, but I was only teaching locally. And so I would teach families privately. So that probably that would be probably the introduction of the Dawn method. Could you define it for us? What it means and what the method entails? The the method, the Dawn method is a set of seven tools that respond to the seven emotional needs anyone has when they're losing cognitive skills. And so um, it, I use the metaphor of a flower. And at the very center of the flower is mood management. And um, that is the first of the dawn tools, is coming to understand why the person who's experiencing dementia cannot manage their own moods. And then understanding how we as their companions can help. And so that, then the, the um, if there's, yeah. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm like I'm like a librarian. I want to tell you about about a dozen <laughs> great thinkers and writers uh, as to why this is true. But but we begin. It's because of the skills kept and lost that we have these emotional needs, and so we start. We need help with mood management, and then because we're losing rational thinking skills, we will be forced to deal with ever more confusion. And so, so in the second tool of the Dawn Method is security and confusion. What does it feel like? Why does it happen? And how do we as their companions meet that need to feel secure, even though we can't make sense out of the world around us? And so that's the, the tools. Each one identifies the emotional need and then gives caregivers um, tools and techniques for responding and meeting that emotional need. So if I list them, starts with mood management, then we have security and confusion, then we need to feel secure, in security and care. We need to feel secure even though we need help with almost everything and more as we go forward. And that's the core of, of human security. That's our, our core uh, needs, uh, security needs to feel safe. Mm. Once, once we have learned experientially from our situation and from our caregivers, we could be safe even though we don't understand what's going on. And even though we can't even so much as brush our own teeth, then the caregiver or the companion can begin adding a sense of well-being. So the last four tools of the Dawn Method are social success, how to help somebody feel successful, even though they're losing language skills, 
and all of their relationships are being affected. Sense of control. How do I help somebody who's losing rational thinking and memory skills make decisions and feel like they are in control of themselves and their, and their daily lives? Sense of value. How do I help somebody who's losing all of these cognitive skills still retain the knowledge that they are valued and that they have something to offer? The last, the seventh, is secure future. Because uh, when you're losing rational thinking skills, you can't access, you can't plan for the future, you can't anticipate a problem, you can't initiate a problem-solving process. And so people end up um, relying heavily on their security symbol. And we all have one. And so that, that's what secure future represents. Mm. And then with Dementia with Dignity, my second book, which I actually wrote first, that book is anecdotes and full of examples and um, explaining how to put the Dawn Method into action and what it looked like for me and my clients and my caregivers and and our families in Moscow, Idaho, uh, as I did it over about a decade. So. so the families that you've been working with, have they kept their families out of memory care facilities? Have they kept them at home? Many times we've been able to, sometimes we can keep somebody home right through death. Other times, the money runs out. You know, the United States, we mm -hmm. are in Medicare, Medicaid, all of our systems, they're set up for people to go into hospitals and to go into facilities. And a lot of state Medicaid programs are written only to provide reimbursement in a facility. And so it was very common that I would find a family who wanted to keep their elder at home through death, but couldn't afford to. And... Um, <laughs> I, one family I'm working with right now, she's heartbroken and she wants to take care of her father in her own home. But there's just simply, she must work, her husband must work, and they couldn't possibly afford caregivers. So she, she knows he'll go to a facility. So uh, with your method, are you able to help facilities provide better care? We, I've been, so the first five years from 2010, when I first started with my first neighbor until 2015, that first period of time, I just spent time with people who were experiencing dementia because I wanted to understand and to test. Then I wrote the books and I began to learn how to teach. Uh, I had to learn how to use PowerPoint. You know? <laughs> There's all kinds of things. If you want to teach people, you've got to learn a lot of skills. I had to learn how to use software. Um, you know, I got my first smartphone and learned how to text because I needed to communicate with caregivers in, in a timely, quiet fashion. But so then from 2015 to 2020, I was creating and um, essentially making what I knew was true and worked into software that I could share the knowledge with. And so just this year or last year, 2020, um, I finally was able to launch a home care subscription. It, I, you know, there's 36 videos. And to tell you the truth, I snuck into WSU's teacher's lounge <laughs> before <laughs> hours and recorded them using their, their facilities. Yeah. 
36 videos that a family can just sign up for for a year and have full access for a year. So that, I think it was a year ago, we got that one out. And then I began working, or I'd been working, learning how to program in LearnDash and create quizzes. So it took me two years <laughs> to create quizzes to attach to the videos so that I could begin certifying caregivers. And that we just started um, we put it on the website in November, and now I'm beginning to talk with agencies and facilities. I've got two agencies who have been using the program as a prototype for about a year, and then a facility that I'm beginning to work with, a, a, a hospital system that would begin to use it. Um, it's I've had inquiries from uh, all over the world, South Africa. Brazil, um, India, where these are agencies saying, I read your book, I understand, I've seen it in my clients. How, how can we get this training to our to our givers? But, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a business person, I'm a teacher. <laughs> so. <laughs> yes, with that, we'll take a little break. Our guest is Judy Cornish. She's the author of the Dementia Handbook. We'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264. Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sole Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Uh, Judy, a few years ago when I was um, visiting a patient with uh, Alzheimer's, I remember the daughter telling me, um, mom doesn't remember me at all. So for me, it's like she died six months ago. And when you hear statements like that as a specialist in this field of dementia and Alzheimer's, how can you help? You know, I, I have heard that over and over and over again, and it just breaks my heart. Um, part of us having intuitive thinking skills is, uh, enables us to enjoy music. And so we have seen over the past three, four years, Dan Cohen um, pioneered saying, music is so good for people who are experiencing dementia. So we now accept that. I'm seeing that um, publicized and I'm seeing facilities and agencies and families and caregivers putting that into, into action, bringing music back into the life of the person who's experiencing dementia. But we access music because we have these intuitive thinking skills. All right, now that's the basis. That's the part that's been tested and proven. Here's what I found out. If you, if you understand, if you begin to think of dementia as being the loss of specific cognitive skills, then you begin to realize which ones your loved one is still using. And when you understand that, it's, it's like coming to grips with um, any loss of human skills. I have a daughter who is losing her hearing. And she will be completely deaf before long. Now, I, Ron and I, we accommodate that. 
We know she's losing a skill and we change our response and the way we support her to reflect her increasing loss of that skill. The same is true with dementia. If I'm losing my ability to remember who you are, to, to recall our relationship, to uh, recall and remember facts, to associate, to use past knowledge, to identify what's going on in the, in the present. If I'm losing that skill, I need my loved ones to support me in an increasing manner in that way. Here's, here's, here's one of my experiences. I grew up in at an adult family home. And when I tell you this story, I will start to cry. I do every time. But, but I drop in to see one of my dear clients. In fact, it's the woman that lived across the street from me back in 2010. And by now, she's living in an adult family home. She couldn't age at home because Medicaid in Idaho wouldn't support that. And so she had to be moved. It caused her a great deal of suffering. However, we, we got her a good adult family home. She lived there several years. And I had been visiting. Long after we were not providing services anymore, I'm visiting. I come in to the home one morning, and the, the staff member says, who, do you, who are you here to visit? And I said, I'm here to see Mary. And she says, Mary? Well, she won't even know you're here. You're wasting your time. And I said, no, no, I'm Mary's friend. I'm here. I'm here to see Mary. Well, you're wasting your time. She can't talk. We have to feed her. She doesn't get out of bed. She won't even open her eyes. Total waste of time. I insisted. <laughs> I am here to see Mary. And I'm going to go sit in her room with her. And so I go in. And she is fetal position, eyes closed, not moving. And I pulled up the chair from the other side of the room and I placed the chair so that if she were to look at me, she wouldn't have to crane her neck or roll over or do anything. I was within possible line of sight. And knowing that my dear friend Mary had all of her intuitive thinking skills and knowing that we as human beings are not only remembering beings, we are experiential beings. We live in the present. Knowing that, I sat down beside her and I said, Mary, you know who I am? I'm Judy. I am your good friend, Judy. You and me, Mary, oh my goodness, we have had fun. You know how we met? I moved in across the street and you'd be out there watering your tomatoes. You'd be out there trying, picking away at, under the green beans. And I'd come over and we would talk. Oh, we had fun together. You and I, we really love each other. So I know that Mary, at this point in her life, doesn't have memory, cannot initiate action. She's lost certain skills. And I know she can't do it for herself, so I'm going to do it for her. As I talk... I'm just telling her, I began telling her about fun things we did together. I began telling her um, the things she liked. And one eye opened. She took a quick look at me under her eyelid and shut it really quickly. But as I told her who she was, who she loved, who loved her, and what a good life she lived, she came back to life. And by the time I left, 20 minutes, half an hour later, she was laughing 
chuckling, holding my hands. And she, when I said, Mary, I'm so sorry, I got to go. She puckered up for a kiss and she kissed me and she hugged me. I'm not even her daughter. We can do this. I don't understand what goes on in America or in our minds. What is going on? If, If our loved one, well, I mean, even think about a child. The infant arrives. It hardly ever opens its eyes. It just lays there. It can't walk. It can't sit up. It offers us nothing. And we recognize its current skill set, and we take care of things for it. And then the two-year-old, we expect a two-year-old to have a certain set of skills, and we don't expect the two-year-old to navigate the world as if it were 12 or 22. We accommodate. And then when our loved ones begin to age and become frail, or, or if they develop dementia as well, why is it that we just turn our backs and say, yeah, 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 you, you've lost skills and you're not meeting my needs anymore or you, you're not interacting with me, therefore you're gone to me. We need, as people, we need to recognize that we still have our memory skills. We can be the memory keepers. We can be the storytellers. It's our job because we've still got the skills that they have lost. You meet people where they are. That's that to me that this is what has I, it my back in 2010, I couldn't walk away because I saw an entire population of people treated as if they were crazy mm. and their needs being ignored as if they were subhuman. And then as I began to follow families through the aging process and through and into death and and watch people forced to meet death on the schedule of a corporate-owned group home facility, rather than being escorted through the last chapter with people who love them, allowing them to follow their own schedule. And think about the person who's experiencing dementia. They just need you to use your skills on their behalf. Do you believe through your studies that Medicare will come up with some kind of solution to allow families to keep their loved ones at home and instead of paying a facility, giving them money to help them keep their loved one at home with, you know, extra help and caregiving? To me, it looks like an incredibly daunting task to uh, change an area of profit. We have a huge infrastructure that is set up to pursue profit. We have, you, if government legislation creates a, a profit center, for instance, um, Richard Nixon, it put Medicare um, into practice and, and he was the one who included kidney dialysis. That, that created a profit center. And we now have huge corporations making a great deal of money from kidney dialysis. So we would have to have caring and knowledgeable and determined individuals in our government, in the federal government, who would create a profit center for caregiving at home. But as soon as you do that, once again, the corporations come after. And they will advertise against whatever does not create profit for them. I'm, so the, I don't see it happening. Dire need will make it happen. 
when more and more Americans are too poor to pay a care facility's price, then we will begin caring for people at home. But I fear that that the the true need of dementia care in America is education. You know, it's it's wonderful to CMS now says person-centered care is good for dementia. Well, that's meaningless. That is jargon, unless you understand what that person's strengths are, which skills they've lost and which ones they've kept, what they can do and what they are still doing and what they can't do. I, the, the cruelest thing in the world, I think, would be to find yourself losing skills. You've used your entire life. And as you become more and more at risk and at need, you're turning to the people who love you the most. And they keep on embarrassing you, frustrating you, and irritating you because they keep demanding that you use skills you've lost or are losing. Education. That, that's what we need. We just need to come to understand again um, what it means to become frailer, both physically and cognitively. But that, there's another hour's topic. <laughs> I mean, we have to talk about <laughs> the effect of Social Security and how that created generational segregation and how that resulted in many generations of Americans having never, ever come in contact with an elderly person. And then you have to think about, well, wait a minute, we've got a word for childhood. We've got a word for adulthood. We don't even have, there's not, the word elderhood isn't even a word. And in America, we think if you're an elder, you're just a failing adult. You're judged by what you should be accomplishing as an adult rather than what that role of elderhood is actually about. I love your mission because it really helps. It honors the personhood of people with dementia and Alzheimer's. It, re yeah. it respects them and gives them the care properly at home, places where they have muscle memory. Uh, to be able to maneuver instead of being locked up in some memory care unit. Yeah. Um, I hope facilities can adopt and learn something on how to care for these patients, even if they're in those memory care units. I've seen some beautiful last chapters. And and when you truly embrace, you know, it's like anything. If you If you resist, it'll be harder. Right. I mean, if if you need to do a, di a difficult task, embrace it, put yourself into it, fully engage. It'll be easier. Um, dealing with physical pain is that way. I learned much from um, from migraines, being unable to avoid migraines. You embrace it. It'll be easier easier. Dementia, if you work with it, there is incredible beauty and gifts they're in dementia for both the person experiencing it and the person who is the companion. And so if somebody is, is allowed to live their last weeks and months on their own schedule, I've seen relationships blossom and, and heal. And I, I've seen the person released by dementia, by forgetfulness, by the loss of rational thinking and attention skills. I see people who are released from all the injuries and scars and limitations they've picked up throughout life and become the full, beautiful personality that arrived here day, day one as an infant. It can happen. Life is a beautiful thing. Life yes. has a beginning and life has an ending. And yes. there is much 
between beginning and ending. And we needn't or we shouldn't fear. Mm-hmm. We should embrace. Yes. What are your final thoughts? Uh, I, I just wish... I wish everybody would just stop thinking about disease and symptom and drugs and intervention and embrace and look at your loved one. Really look them in the eyes. Really begin to think about what you can do and what they can't do and do it for them. Recognize the human. Stop being confused by a change in abilities. Well said. How can our listeners get a hold of you and about your book? So Dementia with Dignity and the Dementia Handbook, they're both on Amazon. And if if I ever have time, I'll make sure I get them on some other (laughs) other sources as well. But if you put in, and and to find me, um, the website is thedawnmethod.com. But if you you Google Judy and Dementia, that's me. (laughs) And that's my books. It's all over the place. And um, and we have uh, the Dawn Home Care subscription for families that, um, you know, maybe limited income. Um, I teach private classes, but it's hard. You have to get on my, uh, I get a lot of demand, I have little time. And um, and then we have the, the Dawn Partner Program for facilities and agencies to train their staff in the Dawn Method too. I really recommend uh, Judy's book, The Dementia Handbook. How to provide dementia care at home. Please get it if you get the chance. Judy, thank you very much. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm, this is clearly dear to my heart. All right, blessings. Blessings. That was Judy Cornish, the author of the Dementia Handbook, How to Provide Dementia Care at Home. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studio in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. 